The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Charlie Cullen didn't want to kill himself. Not really. Just like with those he murdered, he didn't really keep track of his own suicide attempts. Believe it when we say there were many. But like he was fond of thinking, nobody loves you the way they do when you're dying. The compulsion was there, and he wouldn't stop when it came to himself or those entrusted into his care. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Tara. I'm Jill. And it is National Nurses Week. And we want to applaud all of you out there for your devotion, dedication, fortitude, and caring for your patients through your careers, but especially during the dire times of COVID-19 pandemic. The stress and strain must be absolutely formidable, yet you continue day in and day out to selflessly care for our sick and dying loved ones. We do not forget you, and we will certainly highlight the heroine of this story, a brave and courageous nurse. And for those of you who are just tuning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast, and we definitely encourage you to read along with us, but if not, we certainly do the heavy lifting for you. Woohoo! <laughs> Each month, we discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf, and enjoying a snack and a bit of wine, of course, it's book club. And as we like to do an in-depth review of each book, you can anticipate three separate episodes throughout the month. As always, our heartfelt thanks to all of you who have been tuning in to listen to us, especially during these crazy times. We're still in quarantine, so please, as always, excuse the audio quality, but we are doing the best we can to keep you entertained while you're stuck at home. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, scarf, whatever you need to do. If you need to go out, necessary runs only. Try to keep it inside. I know it's getting nice out, but we're doing the best we can. It's getting tough. And, <laughs> and practice that social distancing by listening to us and your other favorite podcasts. Enough of our PSA. We wanted to give a special shout-out to one of our Twitter friends, Ian BitDead at BitDead77. He has endlessly supported our endeavor into the podcasting realm on Twitter and how we are one of the great true crime podcasts out there. That feels good. Yeah. Ian and all of our murder bookies, we certainly appreciate your support and tuning to us every time we put out an episode for you. So, Jill, what are we pulling off our murder shelf today? Today, we are beginning to discuss The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber. And this one certainly hit home for us. The story centers around a nurse named Charles Cullen, who practiced in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, I remember this really, really well. I'm here at that time. <laughs> yeah. At these hospitals, and he was mindlessly killing patients entrusted to his care. Now, this book delves deep into the mind of a man who killed without malice, but merely to satisfy a compulsion that he had to take control. Charles Graber was the only person that Charles Cullen chose to speak with following his arrest, and Graber does a fantastic job of putting together the pieces. Unseen, unheard footage, recording, 
unnamed witnesses, interviews of friends, family, and those involved with the case. And not only does he spotlight the mind of the killer, but he also prevents a not-so-rosy picture of the United States medical system. Yeah, a landscape that has, thank God, changed dramatically since the writing of the book. Thank God for that postscript. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I would have never gone into another hospital again. Wow. No, it has changed dramatically. Reforms put in place were tremendous. The story is told in roughly two parts. The first part, we get a lot from Charlie's point of view. And the second part is the investigation and catching the killer. Published in 2013, this one clocks in about 359 pages, and that includes the post strip. This is a must-read. I'm glad about that, too. Mm-hmm. But a little bit about Charles Graber. He seemed destined to write something medically oriented. He spent his youth with his father, who was a physician, in and out of hospitals learning the ropes. And a mystery to us, but Charles put Tulane Medical School on pause and traveled to Cambodia to pursue a story, which we don't know anything about. He never went back to Tulane, and he's been writing ever since. His writing has been recognized through awards from the Overseas Press Club of America, the New York Press Club, and the American Academy of Poets, including anthologies, The Best American Crime Reporting, The Best American Science Writing, The Best Business Stories of the Year, and The Best of National Geographic Adventure. He also contributes work to Wired, GQ, The New Yorker, New York, Outside, Bloomberg Businessweek, the New York Times, and many, many others. And Graver also recently just published another book called The Breakthrough, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer. The Good Nurse is actually going to be adapted to the silver screen, starring Eddie Redmayne and Jessica Chastain. We cannot wait for this. I am so looking forward to it. Exactly. And I'm sure after we're done with our episodes, you will definitely know who's playing who. But this is Book Club. So, Jill, what's our snack today? All right, so food for the Charles Cullen story that takes place in New Jersey and Pensy. So obviously cheesesteaks came to mind, and that is so obvious that I just did not want to do that. New Jersey people call Pennsylvania Pensy? We do. We call it Pensy. I've never even heard it. Yep, Pensy. Well, I started thinking, okay, so what's so special about New Jersey? What are we known for that's really not known elsewhere? And I really wasn't sure. So I asked my husband, who isn't a native-born New Jerseyan by any means, and he said, how about those dough things with the sugar? Because he had never heard of these before, and by the look on your face, you haven't either. No. And I thought, please. They are a big part of New Jersey culture. If you go to any street festival or a carnival, chances are you're going to see a Zeppeli stand. They're flour, sugar, eggs, vanilla, ricotta cheese. You mix it up. Roll them into little balls. Now, the ones that I'm going to make are the the bite size, but you can make them as large as like golf balls. And you warm up vegetable oil to about 375 degrees. Drop them in there in batches of three or four, gingerly, so the hot oil doesn't splash. And then you just cook them for about three minutes, flipping them halfway through. And, oh my gosh, you sprinkle them with powdered sugar. Let them cool off a little bit, put them on paper towels, to draw off the oil. Absolutely fantastic. This is really Italian. It's really, really Italian, but trust me, this Irish girl loves them. 
I don't even know what I am, but I'll, I'll eat them too. They sound delicious. I wish I could eat them right now. They're really a lot of fun. It's really pretty simple to do. A lot of times you don't have massive amount of times to devote to book club, but it's a really easy dish to make. Yeah, and it'll be on our uh, on our blog. Perfect. I'll yeah. make them here, or you can make them for me once I'm able to see you again. Yes. Soon. Soon. So it's a little bit rainy this week as we're recording, a little bit cool considering some of the temperatures, but we're actually getting a spring in the northeastern part of the country which uh, last year I think it went from snow directly to about 80, 90 degrees. So it did. <laughs> I want to do something a little bit more versatile, not a white or sparkling, which you would normally probably pair with a dessert, but I chose a Pinot Noir. Mm. I'm not getting sponsored by Wine Awesomeness, but I'm really hoping to do so. So um, once we're done with this episode, if you go over to our blog, maybe on Twitter, Facebook, I'll put it on Instagram. I have a referral code. And if you check it out, you might be able to get to about 50% off your first box. So that would definitely be something to check out at wineawesomeness.com. The Pinot Noir that we're going to be drinking with the Cephalese is a 2013 Joseph Chromie Pepique Pinot Noir. And this is actually from Tasmania. Ooh. So a little bit different. I am a big fangirl of Oregon Pinot, French Burgundy. But this one is a really good entry-level Pinot Noir, especially from the region. It's very similar in climate to Central Europe, so not especially cool climate but warm climate. So you're going to get a lot of those ripe, vibrant, plushy flavors of dark fruit, so cherry, mm. um, plum, some maybe a little bit cranberry, but not uh, too many of the woodsy notes that you would get, say, in a cooler climate. And this is 100% Pinot Noir. And I think it runs about $17 a bottle. Roughly everything on Wine Awesomeness is between $15 and $18, nothing too expensive. Really nice source wines and pops in at about 13.5%. So definitely a basic alcohol percentage for, for a really good wine. Nice. Why Pinot Noir is my favorite. It's versatile. goes with everything. I would drink it alone with cheese, with dessert, whatever dish. But you name it. And um, it's actually, it's even older than Cabernet Sauvignon. And if you think about all the Pinot names that you know out there, Pinot Noir, Pinot Grigio, Pinot Blanc, they're Mm -hmm. all the same great, just uh, mutations, color mutation. So fun fact for you, color mutation, they're all the same. And some champagnes are made with Pinot Noir. I did not know that. So yes. The 2013 Joseph Kromi Pepic Pinot Noir from Wine Awesomeness is truly a lovely wine, and I would love to taste this up, please. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a list of things that we have to prepare and drinks we have to sample together when we are allowed to hang out in person. I am ready for a buffet, but we need to really be careful about how we serve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we can't try all the wines the same day, that's for sure. I'll have to spread them out. I was talking about the food. Got to be careful with utensils now. <laughs> okay, so into our story. Graber starts us off at the beginning of the end for Charles Cullen, a.k.a. Charlie. He lists off his lengthy resume of accomplishments. Charlie is, in fact, on paper, a really good nurse. Yes. He, he's a Navy veteran. He has a GED and a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. He's a registered nurse in both New Jersey and Pennsylvania. 
and he's a certified in advanced cardiac life support, intra-aortic balloon pumps, critical care units, and as we know, there is always work for nurses. So he usually didn't have a problem finding work. Now, he's considered handsome, quiet, you know, not verbose yeah. by any means. And the way he dressed, he could have looked more like a doctor wearing a stethoscope around his neck. Now, always the part. Mm-hmm. So it's October of 2003, and Charlie is living in a basement apartment in New Jersey for about 10 years before he moves in with his girlfriend, Kathy, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Now, she has a cozy house with a garden, and he really enjoys tending to the plants. Charlie Cullen has been a nurse for about 16 years at this point, and he has received many complaints, disciplinary citations, and has been a probable suspect in police investigations. But he's passed two lie detector tests as it related to these unexplained deaths of his patients. He has attempted suicide at least 20 times. He's been locked up in jail for a brief period as well. The thing is, though, hardly any of these transgressions has made it onto his permanent record. So I'm reading this and I'm asking myself, how? How is this possible? I think that's a question on everybody's mind. Right. Even if you haven't read this already and you're just listening to us now. (laughs) It's like, wait, how does that happen? How is he just skating by? How is he able to move from job to job with ease? through nine different hospitals, and even a nursing home. And on his resume, there's phrases like he was let go, terminated, asked to resign, and yet he's always hired, based on neutral or even good references. And the ones who wrote this stuff, or as we'll look into it, yeah, neutral. Yeah, just neutral. It's very hard to take in when you're actually reading this book. Yeah. Now, to his credit, Charlie has never missed a day of work, He is well-liked by a lot of his colleagues. He has that flexibility that every employer could only dream of. Charlie is a man only responsible for himself, so he's free and clear to work all the hours that he wants. If anyone is out sick, if there's a death in the family or something unexpected happens at the hospital, call him up. He is ready to roll. And a manager would say he is a gift from the scheduling gods. He's a hire almost too good to be true. Now, that's really what he was, though. He really was too good to be true. They just... when they need bodies in there. Yeah, yeah. They just missed the red flags in this behavior, and those they did see, they just kind of let go. Now, in our second cast, we'll be talking about those specific red flags to look out for when dealing with healthcare serial killers. Now, these guys are rare, but they do happen, and an educated person knows how to look for certain behavioral cues. And thank you very much, Dr. Catherine Ramsland. So we'll get more into that. Please. <laughs> yes. So with Charlie Cullen, he felt that the only place that he really belonged was in the hospital. That was his home. And he didn't have the best childhood. He would describe his youth as miserable. He was born in West Orange, New Jersey, to working-class Irish Catholic parents. And he may even have been considered a mistake, as he was born really late in life for them. Sounds like one of those oops babies. Yeah, for sure. Probably yeah. didn't think it was going to happen, especially as most of his siblings were already out of the house by the time he was even born. Yeah. Change your life, baby. Working class with seven other children, they could barely afford to take care of him. 
Yeah. And when he was seven, his father died. Siblings being adults, they're mostly out of the house, so he's left alone with his mother. And he recalls that his home was a truly, truly dark place. He describes his brothers as being drug addicted, sisters dropping in and out, their hard lifestyle following them, infiltrating their home. So definitely not a place for a young child of seven. And Charlie did what he could. He relied on his mom. And she was the only one that ever really took care of him. And what we know from Graber, he said that Charlie fed desperately on her affections, but there was never enough to go around. Like, he really just wanted her attention, and that was it. That was the only attention that he probably ever received. Sounds like there's a lot of chaos going on. Oh, absolutely. And unfortunately for Charlie, his mother died in a car accident, leaving him alone as a senior in high school. So... Knowing where he's going to go, still in school, it's really hard time when we hear about this a lot, especially with some of the other people that we've looked at. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he did, though, was he blamed the hospital for taking her body and hiding it, leaving him with nothing. And so he did what he's been prone to do, as we will continue to learn. He tried suicide. And unsuccessful at the suicide attempt, he enrolled in the Navy, and he would fail at that, too. And in March 1984, Charlie enrolled in the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing, becoming the only male student. And he was smart enough, he did exceedingly well. He ran for honorary class president, and he even won. He felt at that time that he was really, really something special. I'm glad that worked out for him. But I think this family situation that he's in, Growing up as it is, it's going to leave his mark on Charlie. I mean, like it does on all of us. And I think he feels very rudderless. There's this chaos around him with no core. He doesn't have that rock, you know, that kind of holds things together for him. It's really going to leave him with this need to control his environment. So it's probably a good move that he joined the Navy, even if it didn't quite work out the way he wanted it to. Yeah, and I mean, minus the uh, the father dying when he was so young and the suicide attempts, it almost sounds like he's running on parallel with our uh, buddy Wayne Nance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can so, see it. Similar mothers, whether it was suicide or she did lose control of the car, we don't know, but her death really affected him as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Deeply. So the skills that Charlie picked up in the Navy translated really well into civilian life. He worked for Dunkin' Donuts, now just Dunkin', Haldor, uh, <laughs> and Roy Rogers. And it was at the West Orange Roy Rogers location that he met his future wife, Adrian Baum. And Charlie was the pursuer, maybe even the aggressor, when it came to their relationship. He was absolutely obsessed with her, wanting to make her happy. He would buy her candy, flowers, trinkets, anything he thought that might gain her affection. And this does seem like young male behavior, I feel like, mm-hmm. when we're in high school. But it made Adrian feel like she was on top of the world. She said to her friends, family, here's a guy who cares about me, who cares about my success, my future, just as much as he cares about his own. She was lucky one. And when he asked her to marry him just after six months of dating, she said yes. So not a lot of time, but, you know, she's feeling it. And Graber describes them as a unit. Complete but close. They called it love. So a little bit not super positive for our young people in love here, but it is what it is. And they even returned from their honeymoon 
which I believe is in Niagara Falls. They returned one day early so that Charlie could start his new job at the Berminit in St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. So they're starting off like this young couple in love, careers, have everything in the world going for them. As of June 1987, St. Barnabas is the only certified burn unit in the state of New Jersey. And a shout out to those working there, because they are truly the merciful and brave among us. Incredible in their professionalism and their perseverance in the face of adversity. Truly, these people are blessed. Now, Charlie starts working there, and his job was to clean the burn victims. And this is a very gruesome task that involves scrubbing away the charred, dead skin, which is excruciating. And it's heartbreaking, soul-sucking work. Many nurses wouldn't stick this out long-term, but Charlie enjoyed the job. Many of the patients were children, and he felt a kindred spirit with many of them. He gathered that some of them had been abused based on the burn mark patterns and bruises, and he felt he had been just like them, abused as a child, and even in the Navy, where he was taunted and ridiculed. And at the time, children then couldn't be given powerful painkillers, So who was there besides Charlie to ease their pain? He knew he was being helpful. He knew they needed him, that they were dependent on him. And this is what he wanted. So Charlie and Adrian then start to build their family in the suburbs of Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Adrian has a new job as a computer programmer. And in addition to their reversed schedules, Adrian is working days and Charlie is working nights. She's starting to feel a little isolated and alone, even when Charlie's around. Yeah, he has kind of this self-deprecating vulnerability that was kind of part of his charm when they were dating. You know, he would tell her stories about his alcoholism and depression. And since they were had been together, he never drank. He would always decline when offered. So Adrian never really thought that he would fall back into these troubling habits that stemmed from the time that he was a sailor. So whether he never really stopped drinking or just chose to start drinking again when he was on the burn unit, I mean, who really knows? But she just wasn't aware of how much drinking Charlie may have been indulging in. He evidently hid his liquor in his old Navy footlocker, which was kept down in the boiler room in the basement. So he would go down there, drink by himself, avoid his wife, and get drunk. Just get drunk. Yep, just just do it. Now, in February 1988, Adrian became pregnant with their first child. Now, instead of bringing them together, this had the net effect of Charlie growing more distant from his family. Adrian would say he treated her professional, almost as if she was one of his patients. Now, after their daughter Shauna was born, Charlie had initially adopted a very positive demeanor, right? Like you would think most dads would, right? However, Charlie seemed to feel that he had to choose between her or the newborn. And as soon as the newness of having the baby wore off, Adrian felt that his aloofness started deepening again. It was like the baby was a novelty toy that you play with. And when you got bored with it, you kind of cast it aside. And this is supposed to be his daughter, to be nurtured and loved continually into the future. And he just got 
kind of bored with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think he has trouble with various people. Mm-hmm. He wants their attention. He doesn't want to give attention. Exactly. So then there was the puppy. Yeah. The puppy was supposed to be a companion to Adrian's other pet, who was a Yorkie named Lady, a couple years old. And she made the unfortunate mistake of leaving Charlie in charge one day when they first got the new puppy. And when she came home from work that night, the puppy was just gone. Charlie didn't seem to care, didn't offer to say, hey, I'm for it. Just was like, oh, sorry, basically. He said the puppy must have ran off when he was out for a walk, leaving the door slightly ajar. I had to leave the door ajar. Apparently, this was a regular practice when he went out on walks. Well, not only was this a problem for Adrian, who now had a missing puppy, but the real problem was that he had gone for a walk without their child. Hmm. How old, how old was she? Not even a year? Hmm. Yeah. We calmly told her that he went for a walk knowing that Shauna wouldn't wake up. He knew that the baby wasn't going to wake up. Was he dragging her? If so, with what? And Charlie wasn't even bothered by that. In fact, she noted, and what we'll see continuously, is that he didn't seem anything at all. Just blank. Just wasn't engaged. Nothing there. Yeah. I think they had actually argued about drugging the baby to sleep, which is something that you'd have to wonder, a nurse drugging the baby to sleep. And I think Adrian had won that argument, at least in her mind. But maybe not. Not good. It came to a point where, aside from their reverse schedules, the car in the driveway is going to be the only surefire way that she knows Charlie's even home anymore. Oh, boy. He was. Where is he? Down in the basement in the boiler room drinking. And Adrian recalls a time when she tried to even go down there to confront him. And she said, there's something disturbing about his eyes and the way they drifted apart. Charlie was not Charlie. His eyes were just blank. And like a typical woman in the beginning of marriage, she tried to go to a family and friends for advice, thinking, you know, maybe this is normal. I don't know. Something was definitely wrong with Charlie. Her parents gave her the old adage, marriage is a marathon, not a sprint. You got to wait it out, work on your problems. She would get her out, though, soon enough. One day she comes home and her neighbor came over to ask if they'd seen her dog. So another dog right next door was missing. No, she hadn't seen the dog. And soon, unfortunately, that dog's body was found in the alleyway next to their home. The dog had been poisoned. And Adrian felt absolutely terrible. She was also very, very frightened. Because this sounds like something very similar that happened not very long ago. First her puppy, then the neighbor's dog. And she went back to the kitchen counter after shutting the door where pictures of their daughter at school had been disturbingly cut up. The boys cut out in the photos, and this was Charlie's handiwork. Something was seriously wrong with Charlie. All right, this this would definitely take me aback. I mean, these are red flags in case you have any doubts. You think you're looking at that, and then you find out your neighbor's dog is dead? What? (laughs) Yeah, these are going on kind of simultaneously. This is not like they're months apart. This is like one right after the other. This is the same day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So February 11th, 1991, St. Barnabas Pharmacy nurse Pam Allen brought a suspicious IV bag to the desk of Karen Sidon, who is the risk manager. 
and she immediately looped in the assistant director of security, Thomas Ronald, a former police officer. The port on the IV bag looked like it was full almost to the point of leaking. Okay, that's not normal. And upon testing the contents, which should have only been saline and heparin, which is a blood thinner, in this IV bag, it also showed a hefty amount of insulin. Now, insulin is that protein hormone that's used to treat diabetes. So, a few days later on Valentine's Day, Anna Byers, who's a patient at St. Barnabas, is placed on an IV drip of heparin. A half an hour later, she's confused, shaking, nauseous. Lab results quickly show her insulin levels are through the roof. The nurses begin to try to remedy her sugar levels in every way they could think of. Her doctor orders her IV to be removed, and almost instantly she gets better. But no one makes the connection between the IV bag and her insulin. When she's put back on the heparin drip, she goes down that slippery slope and almost ready to code. And as soon as they took her off the drip again, look at that, she's better. Yep. So the same night down the hall, a patient named Fred Bell was experiencing roughly the same thing as Anna Byers. As soon as the heparin IV bag was removed, he instantly fell better. By 7 p.m. that night, the connection between the doctored IV bags and the side effects on the floor was being made, and the bags tested positive for insulin. A microscopic analysis of the outside of the bad bag showed tiny needle pricks on the edge of the bag. This is not normal, and this is not an accident. Someone had done this purposefully. And upon further investigation, they discovered that patients were crashing and coding with regular frequency. Yet, there didn't seem to be a common link. Not the unit, not the shift. Was it a mistake? No, no. This is deliberate. Oh, yeah. So, Thomas Arnold and Vice President Joe Barry, who was a 30-year police veteran and former major with the New Jersey State Police, began an internal investigation. They learned that a nurse, Charles Cullen, was working every single code. He was someone they definitely needed to speak to. And when they finally approached him, his general attitude was that he just didn't care. Anyone notice a pattern? (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have anything concrete on him. He told them they couldn't prove anything. He told them that. This is probably not necessarily the stance an innocent man would take. And for former police officers, this was a legitimate, viable red flag. If you were innocent, wouldn't you say, wait, wait, oh my God, no, I, I didn't do this. I'll help you figure out who did do this. You know, let me think, who did I see around the IV bags? Or wouldn't you offer to help? But I can't imagine you just, I don't care. I don't care. You can't prove it. (laughs) You can't prove it. I don't care. Uh, Apparently, that's just the stance that he took. I still can't imagine that he really wanted to get caught or not. But he was always waiting for the axe to drop. And when it never came, it was just... Let's just keep going. Let's go ahead. Let's do this. Let's keep on it. Yeah. So the more that they look into the matter, the more cases they find. And no physical case could be made. There's no causal connection. None of the patients had a thing in common. Their symptoms, their diseases, whatever they were in the hospital for, they were across the board. Nothing connected them. And with Colin in their back pocket, he was their primary suspect. 
They strongly felt that this was certainly no accident and it was time to alert the police. So Arnold and Barry, they have a regular monthly sit down with the Livingston chief of police, Don Jones. St. Barnabas, it's the largest employer in Livingston at the time. I feel like it might still be. Graber stated you couldn't separate the private corporate concerns from those of the municipality. Try saying that five times fast when you get a glass of wine. (laughs) (laughs) Jones was most likely looking to ingratiate himself with the two men, especially since when he retired, becoming a part of the hospital system would probably be a cushy little gig for him. And March 5th, 1991 was when they sat down to talk with him. They had all the aspects of a solid case, a crime, victims, evidence, a probable suspect, and at least two homicides. However, this Jones guy, he didn't even want to sniff at it. He said it was best for the hospital to handle the matter internally. Yeah. The administration decided to install stop-motion cameras in the medical storage room and created new protocols to sign out drugs on the floor. So this was their response. And it was then that Charles Cullen stopped showing up for work, and all their problems went away. At least they did something to improve the procedures? Yes, thankfully they did. (sighs) Well, he might have stopped, and their problems vanished there. Okay. So, listen, Charlie knows they're on to him. And Graber writes... Whether he'd spiked one or one hundred or even more, it didn't matter. Really terrifying thought. Yeah, it didn't matter, right? Charlie is barely concerned. They hadn't even looked at the time he'd spent on the burn unit before coming to ICU. He admitted to Graber that he would just spike the IV bags at random and send them out on the floor like grenades. And he figured they probably had him. He wasn't wearing gloves when he did it. So his fingerprints should be all over those bags. And when, you know, nothing happened moving into 1992, Charlie believed that the hospital was afraid or maybe just stupid. And maybe they didn't care about the patients, but they certainly were worried about their reputation. They lied to cover it up, just like they did with his mother's body. And St. Barnabas didn't fire him. They just stopped calling him to come in. They just spirited her body away. Yep. So, on January 10th, 1992, Charlie had to explain to Adrian why he was no longer going to work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, he told her it was an internal political issue at the hospital. It wasn't his fault. He's the good guy. He was going to do what it took to put patients first, even before his paycheck. And therefore, the hospital needed a scapegoat to ward off an impending nurse's strike. All lies, of course. However, he did partly tell the truth, that there had been incidents where patients coded or had even died, and there was an investigation into it. He was at the center. The bosses needed to do something about it. So Charlie, the ever-thinking Catholic, became the martyr. The whole thing didn't make any sense to Adrian at all. Now, what I think we failed to talk about a little bit earlier is, well, obviously he's Irish Catholic. Adrian is Jewish. He relinquished his Catholicism to marry her, but he still thinks of himself as a diehard Catholic. And working in hospitals with saint names appeals to him, Mm -hmm. I feel like. Oh, it's a big Um, deal. Yeah, and he just kind of looks at himself as, 
the martyr, the good guy, the saint, who is just going to kind of be tortured out of this world, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so just two weeks later, Charlie, he's in Phillipsburg, New Jersey, at Warren Hospital, filling out an application for a full-time position. So right in right in his own backyard, basically. And the recruiter asked him why he wanted to leave his current long-standing role. And Charlie told her it was the drive. It was a little too long. And also changing jobs was a family decision. He even called Adrian to tell her the good news, that he'd been hired. If he had done anything wrong, would he have been able to find a job so easily? At this point, though, she really didn't care. She's just happy that he had a job to help pay for their mortgage. They had two girls now. And Adrian hoped that things might turn around for her husband and herself. If anything, maybe she might be crazy. What was that that we talked about last time? Gaslighting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was something really wrong at work, how could her husband get a job so quickly? Charlie is a union member. He's educated. He had to take tests in order to obtain certifications. He's governed by a working body. What is she thinking? The change of jobs definitely seemed to have a positive impact on Charlie. But that just meant he was home again. He was in a hospital. And he even agreed to start working days so that their schedules weren't at such odds. This bliss, if you could even call it that, it only lasted about a week. And Graver wrote, Adrian didn't think Charlie had been a good husband for a very long time. And when their second daughter, Saskia, was born in the middle of December 1991... She decided she didn't like him as a father either. Charlie's secret drinking became even harder for her to ignore. He kept on denying it. He made himself out to be the victim. He he was the one that everyone was kind of dumping on. He said that she violated his privacy. And every time she confronted him, he would retreat down to the basement, down to his foot locker in the boiler room. And Charlie believed that he was just deeply misunderstood. And the way he was being treated was absolutely criminal. Even his own wife didn't appreciate him and what he did on a day-to-day basis. And kind of almost in comical fashion, I'm sure you probably remember this scene in the book, Mm -hmm. one he waited for her to come home, and he just threw himself dramatically onto the floor off the couch with prescription pills flying everywhere, pretending to be dead. And she just stepped over him. Yeah. I think that playing wolf once too often, she just wasn't gonna care. Nope, not anymore. It's like, no, I'm not buying it. You know, there's Charlie playing suicide games again, just stepped over him and, yeah. It's like, oh. I really do love that quote where she didn't really like him as a husband anymore. She yeah. didn't like him as a father either. Oh, gosh. So, by November 1992, Adrian has now had enough. She consults a lawyer. But she's got another problem. She has to have gallbladder surgery. This is terrible timing, this poor thing. She, yeah, she needs gallbladder surgery. It's coming in January, and it is scheduled at Warren Hospital where Charlie works. And she decided she wasn't going into the hospital without a piece of paper informing them of her intent to divorce Charlie. I mean, would he hurt her? This is what's going through her mind. And she doesn't know and she has every reason to be afraid and feel like she's in danger. So the divorce papers were served to Charlie in the ICU in front of everyone. How mortifyingly embarrassing for him. However, they did agree that Charlie could stay in the house and that he could move out when he could afford it. And this was a decision that 
Adrian would regret almost immediately. January 1993 comes. Adrian has done everything that she could think of to get custody of the kids and get them away from Charlie and get herself away from Charlie because she really is afraid of all of them. She accuses Charlie of domestic violence. She told the police officers every odd thing that she could think of, even about the animal abuse, about her pet Yorkie, and other incidents with her animals, the missing puppy, the poisoned neighbor's dog. Charlie got really angry. All right, this drove him to another suicide attempt. Graber writes that Charlie often imagined his own death. Charlie said that when he was in Catholic school, he felt stupid, that he didn't belong, that he didn't feel connected to anyone or anything, that he was depressed, that he was alone, that even sometimes he refused to go to school so he could stay home and be with his mother. His first attempt at suicide was when he was nine years old, when he mixed the contents of a school chemistry set in a glass of milk, but he only succeeded in making himself sick. His second attempt was in December 77 when his mother died. Yeah. So even when she died, that wasn't his first attempt. That was his second. Yeah. He's been trying this out for a while. Yeah. This is something he's played with throughout his entire life. So Charles Cullen decides to do something heroic, but safe. At this point in his life, he enrolls in the Navy as an electronics technician servicing nuclear missiles on the USS Woodrow Wilson. Now, this doesn't go quite as heroically as he plans. They tend to call him Charlie Fishbelly. Do you feel bad for him, but not bad for him? Exactly. I feel bad for this guy being ridiculed and teased. I do. I feel bad for him. He was often humiliated, made fun of. Now, he repeatedly tries to cancel his six-year contract with the Navy, but all he gets out of this is a decrease in pay, being demoted, mopping out the latrines. He gets as drunk as he possibly can. And if he didn't have alcohol, he's drinking Listerine or cleaning liquid. I really do feel bad for him at this point. Yeah. So now, January 13th, 1984, he went to the medic on the USS Cannabis, saying that he drank some poison. Now, this is his third suicide attempt since joining the service. And Graber writes, though, that Charlie would never kill himself. Not really. He just wanted to make himself as sick as possible to be taken care of. Charlie said, quote, Nobody loves you the way they do when you're dying. Close quote. What a quote. Wow. Put it at the top of the episode. Yep. Really kind of sums it up. Using illness and death to get attention, love, positive affirmation. And that's the way he lives his life. Mm -hmm. Wow. And so after his suicide attempt, when Adrian went to file all these uh, protective custody orders against him, he's recovering at Warren Hospital where he works. And a fellow nurse, Michelle Tomlinson, comes to pay him a visit. This pleased Charlie. He believed Taylor's soulmates. She was just like him, depressed, recently divorced, with an on-again, off-again boyfriend. And when he came out of the hospital, it was then that Charlie moved into that basement apartment that he would live for the next decade. And when Charlie returned to work, 
he followed Michelle around like a puppy dog, similar to when he first began his pursuit of his former wife, Adrian. And they weren't exactly dating, at least not according to her. <laughs> um, and she agreed to let Charlie take her out for dinner, what could be the harm. But, you know, as he watched her take the last bite of her brownie sundae at whatever restaurant they found themselves in, Charlie was in love. Uh-oh. She was it. He Uh-oh. started a full shtick again, bringing her small gifts, a plate of brownies literally every shift that he was working with her. However, something was wrong. Why wasn't she returning his affection? Oh, no. He went to the extreme. He told her he was in love with her. Couldn't she see that? And that was when she started to avoid Charlie. She even stopped saying goodbye. He didn't pick up on this, huh? Mm-mm. Not even a little bit? Nope. It's, it's very funny. Like, once the attention was gone, it, he went so hard to pursue it. So maybe that's what he was looking for, because he really valued her attention. Oh, boy. And, her. and on March 23rd, 1993, Charlie did what any friend would do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> boy. Depressed. He needed to help her. He needed to be the help. He had her address, and he drove by her place. What well, wasn't she picking up the phone? Crap! She must be returning his call right now. Mind you, 1993, not a lot of cell phones. Mm-mm. So, she might be returning his call while he's out driving past her place. What we should have told you a moment ago was that Charlie drove about 40 minutes just to see if Michelle's light was on, or if she was at home. And then 40 minutes back to see if he had missed her call. Then another 40 minutes back out to her place where he began peeking into windows. This is not a normal check-in. No, this is not normal. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So he takes a brick, he breaks the window, he waits to see if anything happens, nothing. So he gets inside, he goes upstairs where he figures the bedroom is. He could tell people were sleeping in there. She was safe. He left. That was it. Afterward, he drove to a shopping market and used a payphone to call her. Remember payphones? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> guess she finally answers the phone. Someone had broken into her apartment, though, and Charlie goes, yeah, it was me. He wanted to make sure she hadn't tried to commit suicide, which was a, quote, a gesture to show her his sincerity, end quote. Well, Michelle called the police. Mm-hmm. The police, in turn, got in touch with Charlie, and he promised to drive himself straight down and give himself up. He popped a handful of Xannies mm-hmm. and another narcotic that he had taken from his wife from her gallbladder surgery. About 20 pills in total, then he drove down the police He wanted his suicide attempt to be in the holding cell where people would rush to his aid. But the police actually had no intention of holding him. Once they released him, he drove himself to a payphone, called for help, and waited for the ambulance to show up. So his dramatic staged scene of sliding to the floor unconscious in the holding cell proved to be a bust. Yeah. So he's delusional, probably manic, drugged. Oh boy, Charlie's losing it. I'm watching a bad version of Romeo and Juliet where only Romeo dies. It's terrible. So in April of 1993, guess what? Charlie is sent to the New Jersey State Lunatic Asylum at Morristown now called Greystone Psychiatric Hospital. And uh, Charlie likes Greystone. I wonder why. Uh, Yeah. Talking about himself was encouraged. Stop right there. He'll stay forever. Because he loved to talk about himself. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yes, he does. I know. It was at the end of his stay, he received a note from Warren Hospital. And he figured, okay, 
this is it. All right, he's bracing himself. He's going to be fired. Everyone knew about this incident with Michelle. They had witnessed his suicide attempt. They know about at least two of his patients. Two were fairly obvious. However, they hadn't called to fire him. They were wondering when he'd be coming back to work. They were wondering when he'd be coming. Oh, my God, I can't breathe. They were wondering when he's coming back to work. All right. Let that sink in. We won't say anything else. Okay. So, guess what? Michelle never speaks to Charlie again. Huh. He would see her on occasion, but due to the restraining order, he didn't go near her. Oh, God. He was moved to the telemetry ward, which, according to Charlie, had its own secret rewards, because he's now taking care of heart patients. Not those who are especially critical, but those whose health could potentially take a dive. Kid in a candy store. This is heartbreaking. Meanwhile, the divorce proceedings in Warren County Family Court were not going well for Charlie. And neither were they up in Northampton County where he was charged with stalking, breaking and entering, trespassing, and harassment. <laughs> you think? <laughs> Definitely not going well for Charlie. No. We're going to see some pretty serious side effects from this. And Charlie had thought that representing himself was a great idea. But now he was definitely in over his head. So he had been kind of chugging along representing himself. Probably not as politically savvy as maybe Ted Bundy might have been originally. Mm-hmm. You know where I'm going with this. Mm-hmm. He represented himself, just parallels. He had no money. And due to an error of his own doing on his application, where he failed to, like, move basic needs, like food, rent, like, things where he, that he would absolutely need to survive, he just was like, eh, not going to worry about those. <laughs> because of that, the court would not grant him public counsel. So he finally decided to hire a lawyer. He was putting himself further into debt, obviously, but he really wanted to save face with his children. So where he wants to really care that they even existed, what they thought about him is what really mattered. He really wanted to be the good dad they thought he was. The lawyer quit three days after being hired by Charlie, saying he was too difficult a personality to work with. And oh boy. He on his own again. And he knew he was in hot water, he ended up pleading guilty, and again attempted suicide admitting himself to Warren Hospital's emergency room. And Graver wrote that these hands would leave some of the building stress, like a sneeze or a compulsion, but was usually short-lived, which you can imagine. Yeah. And while no one had a clue that Charlie was murdering people, they didn't know if he was attempting suicide on the regular, and if he did gain custody of the kids, they were certainly concerned that he would take his own life and theirs. Does constantly committing suicide not preclude you from nursing? Wouldn't you think? I don't know. Are you stable? Perhaps, maybe his head just isn't where it should be. I don't know. I I think it's a question mark, and I'm not sure people with question marks should be caring for people. I mean, there's a lot of careful consideration that has to go in nursing. That's why you have to get degrees. And certifications. Mm-hmm. I don't know about my therapist, but... I don't know. Had, <laughs> I, I don't know. Are we being she too judgy? Oh, man. Would I want her treating me? I don't know. I don't know. 
You know, therapists are required to get therapy and to have someone to work with so that they keep perspective. All right. September 1st, 1993. Charlie loaded a syringe with digoxin, a common drug to the ICU, commonly referred to as DIG. We'll call it DIG from now on because digoxin. (laughs) That's, That's a tough tongue twister there. DIG was used to slow the firing mechanism of the heart muscles. So this would become the favorite drug of choice for Charlie. And he took the syringe and he walked into Helen Dean's room, an elderly woman who was recovering from breast cancer surgery at Warren Hospital. Larry, Helen's son, remembers the man who came into the room. He knew all her nurses, but not this one. And all the other nurses had been wearing blue. And this man came in in stark white. So Charlie was left alone with Helen for mere moments and in which she cried to her son, He stuck me! The doctor ruled it as perhaps a bug bite, but later in the day, Helen coded. Her heart stopped, and she was dead. And Larry knew something was not right, and his suspicion... No, it bug bite. No, it definitely was not a bug bite. And Larry knew this was wrong. His suspicion are confirmed when his mother's oncologist stated that she was not scheduled to receive any injections. And Larry remembered the nurse... Charlie was identified, they'd know him, and Larry Dean's next call was to the Warren County prosecutor, and he said his mother had been murdered, and he knew exactly who had done it. Charlie assumed that they were going to figure this out, and that he was done for sure. However, they tested for nearly every lethal chemical that they could think of, but not dig. Helen's death was deemed natural. Charlie was put on indefinite leave, and what else could he do? He attempted suicide one more time. Because that's what you do. That's what you do when you've killed a patient, and you are put on leave, and you stress reduce, and you try to kill yourself. The apartment was not home. Yeah. The hospital was home. Yeah. Charlie's the victim here, though. In his mind, oh my god. It's very hard to take in, all of it. Larry Dean, he knew. Mm-hmm. And what's even harder is Charlie's next job comes not even a week later at uh, Hunterdon Hospital in Farmington, New Jersey. The phone numbers of both Warren Hospital and St. Barnabas were provided as references, and he lived up to their recommendations. You might be thinking, huh? Mm-hmm. Wait. Yes, we are too. <laughs> in October 1995, he received a performance report from his supervisor, calling him a patient advocate who really cared about his patient's welfare. He was bright, witty, intelligent, but however, shortly after that, Graber said Charlie just went dark. Now, having read a few bits and pieces of that dark, as Graber calls it, we know where he's going. And he bore little resemblance to the hire that they thought that they had. And as he moved through Hunterdon, Charlie cared little to remember. This might seem insensitive, but he didn't really care. Didn't remember names of whom he killed. Pretty much no more than he cared about the blemishes that he had on his record. The medication errors just kept stacking up. And on July 19th, just 10 days after he killed an elderly patient named Jesse Eichen, Charlie was pulled into a meeting with his supervisor. He would be terminated if there was another incident. And Charlie or Catholic young man, essentially lost it. Well, if you think I did it, that I'm that bad, then I'll just quit. I'll quit right now. 
Things stormed out of the hospital, going back to his basement apartment, took out his typewriter, and he wrote a letter to the Hunterdon administration saying that they could keep his 170 hours of overtime that he accrued due to his good attendance. And you know what? Keep that paid vacation, too. I don't need it because I didn't do anything. Oh, boy. Graver, he likens this to a grand gesture of suicide on his part. He wrote, Who but a righteous man? One of pure intent would be willing to throw away paid hours. And then he dropped the letter in the mail and said, oh shit. But it was too late. They gladly accepted his resignation and kept his sacrificial offering. They probably were thrilled he made it that easy for them. Exactly. He tried to follow up with another letter, but I think they just took the first one. No, no, no. Thank you. We we agree with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So after his resignation from Hunterton, he drove right up the road to Morristown Memorial Hospital and snagged a job in the cardiac care unit. This is October 1996. He was seriously vetted by the professional service that hired him, albeit there was a few discrepancies in the exact hire and fire dates on his resume. The hire and fire dates. Yeah, the fire dates. Mm-hmm. But... Accomplished as he is, with nine years of experience at Hunterton, Warren, St. Barnabas, who cared? However, he really didn't bring his A-game to Morristown. The morning shift claimed to arrive at work, finding Charlie's patients cowering in pools of their own blood, with 25 washcloths in the sink and junk all over the counters. One patient even wanted the police to be called, but the police were not called. Charlie was barely even reprimanded. However, there were too many incidents and too many patients were complaining, so he was let go due to poor performance. He was there less than a year. And guess what? He tries to commit suicide again. No way. Yep. He loved the attention from the EMTs because the spotlight is on him. What he really wanted was to go back to Greystone, the psychiatric asylum. And the only way to get there is through the hospital. Greystone's vacation at this point. Sure. And Charlie's next application goes out to Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is his first stint in Pennsylvania, which required a different nursing license. Therefore, the slate was wiped clean. He definitely needed a job in a few months of being out of work. And at Greystone, Charlie was almost $70,000 in debt. Forgive me, I didn't calculate that, or else that might have been a fun fact for the episode. (laughs) But he at least needed to pay child support so that his kids wouldn't think he was a bad father. Now that was unacceptable. And guess who confirmed his appointment and gave reference? Morristown and Hunterdon Hospitals. Of course they did. Of course he did, that's right. His old supervisor at Hunterdon would even say that Charlie was an excellent nurse and gave good care to patients. And she would certainly recommend him for employment. Can I commend him for being conscientious about wanting to pay child support? Can I? Okay. I don't think it's about being a good dad. I think it's just about them thinking he's a good dad. He's delusional. Yeah, it's about what other people think of him. There's not a good approval rating. He's going to get his feelings hurt, and he's going to try to do it. Yep. Sorry, we're not walking to the We're not. 
It's his control mechanism for extracting attention. It's that behavior. And one of Charlie's victims at Liberty that we know of, because again, there are many, and he didn't keep track of them all, and we can't even really appropriate all of these victims. Again, probably 400 that could be considered his victims based on what we know. But one of the victims was named Francis Henry. Charlie loaded a syringe with insulin and injected it into his IV. The next morning, Francis Henry went into diabetic shock, coded, and was dead. And again, no matter how much he killed, it didn't even really seem to phase him. And just like that, a few days later, filed for bankruptcy. Probably didn't even really care about that, unfortunately, either. But Francis Henry's death did not go unnoticed as lab results found large amounts of insulin in his blood. And his death was ruled as a medication accident, but Charlie was certainly being watched. He'd already been written up a few times for medication incidents, but they ended up firing a senior nurse named Kimberly Peppy. A wrongful termination suit was filed, and Peppy's lawyers even suggested that Charlie was the guilty party and that Liberty Nursing knew it. He knew it. Liberty denied the allegation and settled the matter out of court, sealing the matter with a non-disclosure agreement. So with a non-disclosure agreement, you're not to talk about anything. You mm-hmm. just accept facts, and that is what it is. No criminal investigation was initiated at Liberty, and they felt no criminal incident had even occurred. Just a medication problem, that's all. Well, yeah, everything's fine. And yet, our man Charlie was moved to the site board, and eventually he was fired from failure to adhere to drug protocols roughly five months after the death of Francis Henry. But no matter, two days later, he was hired by Easton Hospital in Easton, PA, within their ICU. Oh, boy. So, moving around, moving around. So, at Easton, we know that one of Charlie's victims was a man named Ottomar Schramm. His daughter, Christina Toth, frequented the hospital to watch over her father and keep him company. She wasn't a fan of the male nurse that came in to give her father an injection, but she, you know, she wasn't an expert. Her father was in good hands whether she liked the man or not. Her father's condition started getting worse by the next morning of December 29, 1998. Shram's doctor, Robert Silverman, advised Christina via phone call that somebody in the hospital had ordered blood tests for her father, and they were unauthorized, and he didn't know who or why the tests were ordered. He could say one thing, and that was his blood-contained a drug called DIG, which was strange, because it was not prescribed for her father, and it didn't occur naturally in the body. The following morning at 1.25 a.m., Dr. Silverman called Christina again with astonishing news. Her father had died. His DIG levels were off the charts. And he gave her one last piece of advice. Ask for an autopsy. And that's exactly what she did. Good. Shram's death would be ruled as an accident, even with the high levels of dig in his system upon his death. Charlie was already gone as the gossip began to go around the nurse's station. He said that Easton didn't suit him. And by March 1999, he had a full-time position down the road at Lehigh Valley Hospital back in the burn unit. Charlie was amazed by the evolution of the drugs that they were now able to use to help manage pain. With the new class of drugs came a new way to track them. 
a company called Cardinal Health out of Ohio produced a machine called the Pixis, which was a mobile medical station that kept track of each drug and who dispersed them to the patients by a way of computerized cabinet. Charlie appreciated how the machine officially tracked a nurse's drug withdrawals the way a bank ATM machine traces cash withdrawals, linking each with the account of a particular patient and nurse to create a record. The Pixis simplified billing and provided a means for the pharmacy to know exactly when any drug was running low and to send the runner for restock. That's a perfect way to describe it by Graber too. Just easy as an ATM and just a simple messaging system to make sure drugs were mm-hmm. slotted back in. And, you know, over the course of 16 months that he worked in the Lehigh Valley Burn Unit, he felt compelled to continue doing just as he already had done. And as indifferently as always, and he couldn't remember how many people he had actually killed. <laughs> However, there was a young patient named Matthew Mattern who had been trapped in a burning truck accident and had burned over 70% of his body. Everyone on the unit figured he was going to die. It was a really sad case, but it was just a matter of time. Charlie felt he was in charge and felt necessary for himself to intervene. And that was to show everyone that he could do just as he pleased, just as he wanted. And on October 31st, 1999, he loaded Matthew's IV with a large dose of dig, and he was dead before the night was over. Exerting this type of control really was stress management for Charlie. He was really offended by his male co-workers. He's in debt. All the problems of the world were his, but it was still a compulsion. He just had to do it. He never really knew any of the patients, didn't even notice them, only their outcomes. And after the relief of taking a life ran out over a few months, he would go to attempt suicide yet again. But all he asked was that he was taken anywhere but Warren Hospital. And after that attempt in April 2000, the burn unit made it known they were certainly on to Charlie, or at least that they no longer liked him. He tried to transfer to the cardiac unit, but they didn't want him on their ward considering his incident file. His shifts were reduced, and ultimately, they were canceled altogether. And for Charlie, I don't want to say luckily for him, but for someone out of a job, there was a hospital in Lehigh Valley, and he figured he'd have no problem finding work whatsoever. He now had 13 years of experience across six hospitals and a nursing home, and he could definitely count on his former employees to confirm the dates on his resume, just as they'd always done. Continuing to praise his work ethic, his skill, his bedside manner, all those things that just kept him getting jobs at hospitals. And the first hospital to receive his updated resume was St. Luke's Hospital in Fountain Hill, Pennsylvania, literally just down the road from Lehigh Valley. St. Luke's was ranked by the U.S. News and World Report as, quote, one of the country's best medical facilities. And experienced nurses, just like Charlie, would get a nice hiring bonus. And for Charlie, this was exactly what he needed. They just didn't need him. Correct. So guess what? The codes were happening constantly on the night shift. There were definitely more than they'd been before, but no one could really remember when it all started. Yet, there was Charlie, often the first to run into the room. Graber wrote that he had a habit of hopping on the bed, straddling the patient, pumping away on his chest. His attitude seemed overly dramatic, but oddly without emotion. Like he's struggling to 
pick up on people's emotions. I mean, you would think you'd be like frantically, oh my god, this guy's going to die, and he's just, yeah, pumping away, whatever, like he's trying to start a car. I just feel like it's very hard to like register an emotion that he knows should be there, so he's trying to act it out. Yeah. So, February 2001, Charlie didn't like a lot of his male colleagues. Shocking. Whew, that's uh, a big surprise. Yeah. He preferred actually not to even be on the schedule with them. He enjoyed working with the women, and he even began paying attention to a young, attractive nurse named Julie. And he would leave her small gifts at the nurse's station with a note signed, Your Secret Admirer. Charlie even made up a fake name. Brian Flynn, with Y's, to add to the mystery. He was the anonymous center of attention. You know, he knew it was all about him, and he decided to put a name to the face and surprise everybody. And what the female nurses once thought was sort of sweet and mysterious became slightly disturbing. The male nurses made fun of him, and this was not the reaction he was expecting. And he was more than humiliated. Could you imagine that, though? It's almost kind of sad. Oh, it's just pathetic. Yeah, it's like, oh, I think I'm this great romantic gesturing guy, like, getting the nurses all, I don't want to say hot and bothered on the job, but... <laughs> but clucking around like hens. They're all whispering, who's the anonymous guy? Oh, my goodness, exactly. is it a doctor? Is it... Oh, it's it's the, the guy who straddles the patients? Helen? It's him. It's him? Yeah. Graber followed saying that Anonymous could deny and Anonymous could disappear. Anonymous was an unapologetic mystery, godlike in control. Yeah, it did not go the way he wanted. But shortly after this incident, the night shift received an elderly woman who was very sick and had been transferred from another facility. Nurses called these dumps. Not really nice, but... I know. That gallows humor that kind of comes with this. The patient had essentially been brought to their facility to die, so they'd kind of been dumped. Charlie took the direct route that night, injecting Dig right into the port of the woman's IV. And if anyone was watching, this was a normal action. It's nothing out out of the routine. But when she died, she was Charlie's only patient, and he's allowed to go home early. So again, that's how we might not be able to attribute every single victim to him because most of his actions look normal. And sometimes it didn't even show up on the tests. Yeah. So depending on what they were testing for. Yeah. In the springtime, St. Luke's nurses began to notice that meds were going missing. One of the drugs always missing was pronestol, and it was a rarely used drug on the floor. You know, I didn't even look up what it was used for. But it wasn't anything to be concerned about. It was just one of those drugs that was just there in stock all the time. Mm. And every afternoon, it was restocked. Every night, it was gone. And it had been that way for almost six months without anyone doing anything about it. And that fact right there is why I just really didn't look it up. Yeah. It's <laughs> no, like, okay. No one that it was just missing for six months. And at that time, too, Charlie had decided that he didn't really like St. Luke so much. They were pretend Catholic. They had no religious affiliation whatsoever. He was the one who'd been throwing the pernestal away every day that he worked, and it was mainly out of spite. He hoped he was costing the hospital money. It's really what it was. 
And finally, a nurse in April of 2002 mentioned to nurse supervisor Elena Medeo and the hospital pharmacist Tom Nugent that the pronostol was always out. Always. Yep, gone. You know, nothing was done then. And Charlie found it easy to take the indirect route at St. Luke. So he had a direct route where he would just go directly jack things into IV ports or this was when indirectly he would load these IV bags up like grenades, like we said earlier. No one would think anything the wiser or that something sinister was taking place. Charlie was being helpful. He was restocking medroom. He was the nice guy, helping his fellow nurses setting up IV lines for them. They all thought he truly cared when he showed up to that code and attempted to save a patient's life. No one would ever connect the dots. He injected the IV bags with poison cocktail and loaded them onto the patient trays. And he had no idea what would happen once the patients were hooked up. But hell, it didn't even really matter who lived or died anyways, according to him. Yeah, it's just medication roulette. Mm-hmm. He has no idea really what's going to going to happen. So in June 2002, Nurse Kim Wolf was finished with a needle in the med storage room and went to throw it out in the sharps bin. And it was usually empty, but today the needle wouldn't even fit in the trash. And she peered inside, seeing white cardboard boxes, not syringes as she expected. And she found Jerry Campbell and Candy Walmart at the nurse's station and asked them to come take a look. As they carefully dumped the contents onto a bedpan, they began to write down a list of the items they discovered. This made no sense. They noted there was a bunch of this prenestrol thrown out, a waste, but not concerning. But what was concerning was the empty bottles of the vecuronium bromide. Vec. <laughs> Vec. I was gearing up for that one. You would do a lot of hard one. <laughs> Vecrononium bromide. Vec, as it was called. Now, this is a paralytic agent. Think about that a minute. When you use it in large quantities to cause an overdose, it causes a patient to feel that they are drowning or suffocating. You'd be paralyzed, unable to move, but it wouldn't stop you from feeling pain. Now, VEC is a non-reconstituted drug, which means it comes in a powder form where it has to be reconstituted. So an example from the book was like it's making Kool-Aid. And then it's used in a syringe to empty the bottle. So given the number of empty vials, there is a lot of VEC out there unaccounted for. And once in a syringe, it had to go somewhere. Who's got the VEC? Where's it going? Who's using it? How terrifying is that, knowing what VEC is? Horrifying. That's like your worst horror movie? Uh Uh-huh. Your worst serial killer horror movie, only this is real. Yeah. So Jerry, Candy, Kim, they decide to keep an eye on the medical storage room. And that night, as they watched, Charlie went into the room and shut the door behind him. Odd. A few others before him didn't bother to shut the door. And when he left, they all went in to investigate. The sharps box was full, and Ellen Amadeo was notified again that the drugs were going missing. And this time, they knew who it was. On June 3rd, the sharps box was opened again by Jerry, along with his manager, Terry Kohler. They discovered several dozen empty bottles that included nine empty back files. Shit. 
They weren't aware at the time that the drugs were used to murder patient Edward O'Toole earlier that day. The St. Luke's Hospital risk manager, Janice Rader, was notified. And that day, a new protocol went into place where the charge nurse would regularly check the sharps box for additional medications being thrown out. However, with Charlie being off, it remained empty. Rader contacted her boss, Ken Vale, to advise him of the situation to figure out the best way to handle it. He called their in-house counsel, who called a large law firm named Stevens & Johnson, who specialized in criminal law and malpractice defense on a corporate level. Because, you know, it's hospital, they probably need that. And an attorney named Paul Laughlin decided the case. And no more than 12 hours later, he was called to the hospital. Charlie was back on shift, and the sharps box was full. Charlie was put into a room with Laughlin, so they basically told him, you gotta go talk to this guy. Yeah. Laughlin looked at him for some time, making him feel a little bit uncomfortable, maybe, and began asking questions related to patient's deaths. The empty vials of Beck, missing medications, all the strange occurrences on the ward. Our man Charlie didn't even express concern or surprise at finding himself in one of these situations. Hmm. Could you imagine if you were? At Jill, I know you'd be hyperventilating. I absolutely would. Oh my god. I'd be terrified. Yeah, and as um, we get from Graver regarding how Charlie felt, he mentions that Charlie, you know, he's, he's tired at this point, and he didn't even care about the situation enough to remember what emotions he was even feeling. So I guess just like we mentioned earlier, he's struggling to even emit emotions that are ingrained into all of us. Like, he just doesn't feel them. It is a blank slate. Like, I should be nervous now, I think. Hmm, what is that? Hmm. But, you know, he's tired. Hear me. And all Charlie knew, his immediate thought was, I'm being bullied again. If they knew what he had done, why didn't they just say so? And Charlie knows he has options, but then again, it's not really much of a choice. He knew if he resigned, he'd still be given good references wherever he went, and this wouldn't show up in his personnel file. And therefore, he was escorted off the property by security, never to return again. Just, bye. Bye. Here's your references. Don't sue us. Mm-hmm. Three days later, on June 8th, after he was let go from St. Luke's, he was over at Sacred Heart Hospital, about 10 minutes down the road from Allentown. This time, he didn't fudge any employment dates, and his references indeed remained neutral, getting him hired. What he didn't know was that some of the administrators over at St. Luke's had been calling their colleagues in the area. And However, it appears they didn't know anyone over at Sacred Heart. One place they don't call. Of course not, right? Now, he already liked his co-workers, especially Kathy Westerfer. Kathy was a new hire working the night shift just like him, and she was single. And within a week, they're dating. And this time, she knows they're dating. <laughs> it didn't take long. He became very, very attached. And no more than a few weeks later, Charlie receives a call telling him not to come back and work any shifts. What happened? His termination was cited with interpersonal conflicts. Now, Charlie's suspicious, but he didn't know the half of it. Someone that he had worked with at Easton Hospital was also at Sacred Heart. And in spreading the news, many of the nurses had signed a petition and threatened to quit outright 
if Charlie Cullen wasn't removed from the hospital. That's and insane. Yeah, they said, no, 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 you don't want this guy. This guy's bad news. We're all going to quit. And the administration acquiesced. Kathy did feel sorry for her new boyfriend. And this is the same Kathy that we mentioned at the top of the episode. She let him move in with her into her house in Bethlehem. And Charlie was finally able to leave his basement apartment behind. I love that basement apartment with the garden. Yep. Kathy also has a garden that he likes to tend to as well. Mm-hmm. He does. But, you know, behind the scenes, finally, in August 2002... Charles D. Saunders, who was St. Luke's Senior Vice President of Medical and Academic Affairs, placed a call to colleagues in the local Bethlehem area to see if they had any unusual incidents that may have been related to a nurse named Charles Cullen. Many of them said they had, and for that reason, he was actually beyond consideration for being rehired, although many had provided neutral, if not great, references for him to continue working in the area. And while many of these people were calling their colleagues, they all failed to notify the public, the state nursing board, or even the police. And a month later, in September 2002, Charlie saw a flyer for a job at Somerset Medical Center in Somerset County, New Jersey. And after working in five medical centers in less than four years in the state of Pennsylvania, it might not be a good idea to try to work there anymore. New Jersey was definitely looking good. Yeah. It was 50 minutes from where Charlie grew up, and it could not be more different in socioeconomic status. 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 Which one? Where are we going with today? We'll see when I edit. We'll let the line do the talking. (laughs) Now, here's a brief history of Somerset. It's one of the oldest and richest counties in the United States. John Dryden, who is the founder of Prudential Insurance, which I'm sure many people have heard of, built his first mansion in the area in the 1880s. His first mansion. The first of many. Sorry. Sure. Look it up. Fun fact. How many mansions (laughs) did he have? (laughs) During that time, the boom years after the Civil War, some of the wealthiest citizens in the country moved to that area. And in 1898, they decided they wanted a hospital. And this was actually due to the unfortunate death of a 16-year-old boy which could have been prevented had there been a nearer hospital. I think they were trying to go all the way to Newark with this kid after his head got bashed in by a horse or something like that. Yeah, it was terrible. They said it could be prevented and he probably would have survived had they not had to travel so far. And then the initial donation of $5,500, but it kick-started everything, got everything up and running. A house on East Main Street was converted into a hospital and outfitted with the latest technology. So we're talking x-rays, electricity, running water, a surgical theater lit up by who? Thomas Edison's most recent invention, the light bulb. And it started with 10 doctors and 12 hospital beds. So you had about almost one doctor per patient. Pretty good. Is that calculation right? I think it is. And after many years, the hospital transformed into the sprawling healthcare system that it is today. And now that same hospital was getting a $10,000 sign-on bonus to experienced nurses just like Charlie. Very experienced. Just not so much about the care as the killing. So on August 15th, 2002, this is where Charlie found himself at Somerset Medical Center. He had preferred critical care, but he's easy. He'll work in any ward. 
He was open to all hours, rotating shifts, on-call shifts, nights, weekends, holidays. He's just so accommodating. That good employee. Yeah. Do you remember that movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, True Lies? Oh, yeah. I want to be with you. Days, nights, weekends, holidays. <laughs> I can't do a Schwarzenegger. I know. Everyone should watch that movie, though. It's one of his greatest works. It, it is terrific. So Charlie gives his usual references. St. Luke's, Lehigh Valley Hospital, Liberty, his former supervisor at Warren even said he had a great work ethic, was very conscientious and intelligent. Just these stellar references. Yeah. September 2002, he's offered a full-time job with some of the most vulnerable patients in the critical care unit. And I'm just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And they're going to do it. So Charlie instantly becomes a very popular night nurse. The day shift liked him. He was organized, and they could give him a brief rundown knowing their patients would be in good hands. He was also praised by the night staff because he was efficient and always able to lend a hand. He quickly made friends with a tall, pretty, blonde nurse named Amy Lochran. Amy will become central to our story in part two. She was outspoken and honest and she wasn't afraid to make a stink if she felt what was happening wasn't fair. She was the type of motherly figure Charlie craved, and he instantly gravitated to her for attention. He's getting it back now. Yep. And you know, Amy actually came, maybe not a similar background, but close to it. She unfortunately came from an abusive childhood, just like Charlie. And while she was tall, confident, willing to lend a hand where she could, she actually also suffered from panic attacks. And sometimes they were so bad, she couldn't even leave the house. And she felt that given her childhood, she couldn't really let anyone know her fully. Not even her friends, not her children, no one. But her friend Charlie made her feel safe, and she sensed a kindred spirit in him. Amy said Charlie never hit on her. Unusual for those that he clung to, as we've seen with previous examples, Kathleen, Michelle, Adrian. But she did mention a couple odd things about Charlie. One was that close the door to his patient's room along with them. Again, something that coworkers found creepy. And this wasn't the only hospital that he did it in. Mm-hmm. And then the other was his constant use of the stirrer machine, similar to the Pixis. And to Amy, Charlie was one of the funnest people she ever met. And I don't think we've ever gotten this, though, from anyone else being funny. But she enjoyed hearing the crazy stories that she told him about him and his girlfriend, Kathy. She called it the Charlie and Kathy show, and she just couldn't wait to tune in. And just like Charlie, Amy had a secret, too. And her secret was she was dying. And Charlie found Amy not feeling well one night. She was propped up against the wall. He brought her into an empty hospital room to get her some rest. And she told him that she had diagnosed herself with advanced atrial fibrillation, which she believed was brought on by a long-held sinus issue. And the anxiety, those panic attacks, weren't helping her, could also be responsible for those circumstances too, and just also that deep psychological trauma that she carried from her childhood. And a few months later, not just in front of Charlie, but she collapsed in front of everyone on shift, and they rushed her to the ER. And she had to have a pacemaker put in place to keep her heart going. And without Amy's attention, for the months that she was out recovering from the surgery, his compulsions took over and he began to kill again. And he definitely didn't keep track. 
member, he lost that mother figure. And he, so now he was purely, I would say, out of control at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, he exerts a hefty amount of control, but this is out of control for him. One that we know of was a 60-year-old woman named Eleanor Stroper. And it was the night of Charlie's 43rd birthday. And he used a drug called Pavilon, a strong paralytic similar to that Vec that we talked about earlier. Others that were killed were John Shaniger, who was murdered with a dose of norepinephrine, which is a stress hormone and neurotransmitter that sends messages between nerve cells. And then also Michael Stranko, who was a young man, dosed with a lethal combo of day epinephrine or adrenaline. Yeah. Yeah, he's just completely running amok. So a new insulin protocol was issued to make the nurses more accountable for administering drugs to patients especially drugs that could kill. Now, Amy had come back to work, and she thought these new measures that were put in place were ludicrous. What they were asking is for nurses to put their signature on their guesses for how much liquid was left in the vial after taking some for patients. So you can guess that others believed, as Amy did, that this is this is crazy. Yeah. They're asking nurses to guess, essentially making an accurate statement on how much is left in the vial. I mean, how are you supposed to be able to look and say, oh, well, that's three, you know, three milliliters. Okay, how, how much a teaspoon looks like. It, really? Her supervisor told her, however, this isn't about you. Well, what does that mean? It's still a protocol. I still have to put my name on the piece of paper. What do you mean it's not about me? So she understood that there had been more bodies than usual, and there was an uptick in the number of codes, but she didn't connect the dots as to who could be the responsible party here. Now, the Reverend Florian Gall had been at Somerset Medical CCU for almost as long as Charlie had been working there, just shy of nine months. His sister Lucille, who was a former nurse, was at the hospital quite often, and she had her opinions on his care. Charlie did not like her opinions. Yeah. The Reverend was on his way out with a hefty dose of dig. Gall's dig levels were so high that the administration knew they had a problem and that this was not a natural death. He wasn't even the first. They called him patient four. Yes, Somerset figured that they could handle it internally as quickly and quietly as possible. The the pharmacy would look at the Pixis system and explain the dig, and a nurse named Nancy Doherty would call the New Jersey Poison Control. And on July 7, 2003, Nancy spoke with Dr. Bruce Ruck from the New Jersey Poison Control Center. She explained that it seemed that they had patients who had died from a dig overdose. And as Nancy explained the situation, Dr. Ruck couldn't imagine that these circumstances would be right. Different patients died on different nights, but with the same drug. Didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. He asked if it was the same unit. Yes. And Dr. Ruck spoke very slowly. Nancy, it's impossible patient levels of dig to be that high unless they were given the drug. Do you understand? She said yes. But then also, off the record, she said there were two before this. Dr. Ruck told Nancy that he would do the calculations necessary, which was why poison control was called in the first place, to do calculations based on the amount of dig in someone's system versus what needed to be given to them in order to create this whole mess. And, And that would explain the levels they say in the patient test. And risk manager Mary Lund and Dr. William Kors, the medical director, they were busy looking to connect the dots back to nursing schedules. 
So everyone's trying to piece this all together to try to figure out what happened. But even Dr. Ruff knew something was seriously up. Yeah, it doesn't just show up in your system. Yeah, it yeah. has to be given. And that's what Dr. Ruff is going to tell Nancy multiple times and anyone else he can talk to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after speaking with Nancy, Dr. Ruff actually goes to speak with the poison control director, Dr. Stephen Marcus. He knows there's a problem pretty much immediately. And Dr. Marcus's gut told him that someone was definitely killing patients at Somerset Medical Center. And if the administration needed to acknowledge they had a problem, then more patients were going to suffer or more patients going to die. On the following day, Dr. Marcus and Dr. Ruff were asking to set up discussions with Mary Lund and the administration at Somerset Medical. And, of course, you can understand Dr. Marcus was absolutely heated. <laughs> you know, if there's someone out there intentionally poisoning patients at the hospital, the poison control center had a legal obligation to report their findings at state. Mm-hmm. And of course, they confirmed that their own physicians even came to the conclusion that someone might be deliberately doing this. And, you know, I'm not exactly sure how many times we have to say this is a police matter, how many times Ruff or Marcus said this is a police matter, but it was reiterated constantly during every conversation that they had. And Dr. Marcus actually termed this a sentinel event, which should have lit a fire under their asses. This meant that anything that threatened the patient's safety needed to be reported to law enforcement. So, like, hey, call talks, you need to do this. And there'd only be one more call between poison control and the administration, in which Dr. Marcus stressed again that these events needed to be reported to the state, and they were already out of compliance. But again, London Corps advised that we're not going to call anybody. Nope. Huh? Well, guess what? Dr. Marcus had already reported it and all their conversations. Because just like any conversation voice control, it was recorded. Mm-hmm. And a few hours later, Mary Lund contacted the Department of Health and reported the patient incident. They expressed a review of documentation within their system, and it was already underway, and so far, they hadn't found any mistakes. Thank you, Dr. Marcus. He is at least trying to do the right thing here. He's told them repeatedly, call law enforcement, uh, call law enforcement, you're out of compliance, call law enforcement. Wait, what? Call law enforcement? Is that what you're saying? Oh, law, law, call law, yes, call law enforcement. Oh, oh police? Popos? <gasps> I mean, if you have someone murdering people, what do you do? You call the police, don't you? Yes, absolutely, especially during this. Just infuriating. Oh, my God. You know, dig is a weapon here. It's being used as a weapon to poison and murder people. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. So, July 14th, attorney Raymond J. Fleming had been called to Somerset, and he found himself set up in a room with none other than Charles Cullen. No way. Yep. Fleming advised that they knew about Reverend Gall and that Charlie had placed an order for dig and canceled it. One of two canceled dig orders that night. Fleming revealed that they knew a number of bottles of dig had gone missing. Charlie just sat there. Then Fleming asked, do you know that if you order a drug and cancel it, it still shows up on the Pixis record? And Charlie said, yeah. Did he really? I don't know. Oh. Again, he just doesn't react, doesn't respond, just sits there and says, yeah. And so I canceled it. Now, Charlie at work, 
Charlie always made the coffee. He was always being helpful. He knew that people were inconsiderate. And everyone that know, everyone knows that if you kill the Joe, you make some mo. Learned that work for me. <laughs> it's true. So he'd watch the nurses drink the coffee, and they depend on him without even really knowing it. That night, he injected a high dose of insulin into the IV port of James Strickland, and then he signed out and went home. He didn't need to be there for the finale. However, Strickland didn't die immediately and took another two weeks for Charlie to complete the dirty deed. Uh, he finally got him with a high dose of dig. But Charlie had gotten smarter. The dig didn't show up on Strickland's chart, nor did it show up on his Pixis report. Charlie would go and kill more at Somerset using a variety of jug cocktails. Melvin Simcoe, Christopher Hardgrove, Francis Aguada. After 16 years of getting away with it, Charlie had gotten smarter, and it was almost like he was invisible on the charts now. The possibilities were endless, and he wasn't going to stop. And this concludes part one of our series on The Good Nurse by Charles Graber. Tune in next time as we delve into the investigation of Charles Cullen and the brave woman who risks it all and helps to catch him. You won't want to miss it. And if you want to get a head start on our next book, pick up your copy of Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by Daniel Bran. It's a touch different than our usual murder shtick, but without the FBI, we definitely wouldn't have a classification system for serial killers. However, you will not lack for murder, mystery, and intrigue in this gripping tale. Join us as we take a step back in time to the last remnants of the Wild West. Wealthy members of the Osage Indian Nation are being killed off under mysterious circumstances, sparking an investigation with the FBI. And led by a young J. Edgar Hoover and former Texas Ranger Tom White, the two lead a team undercover to infiltrate a region using newly fledged investigation techniques to uncover a shocking conspiracy. This book is so interesting, it reads like a novel. They're going to love be it. DiCaprio film. Woo! Hey, listen, thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd be happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts on our readings into the show. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean, and let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. Every little thing you do helps us to keep going further. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. He quickly made friends with a tall, pretty, blonde hearse. Hearse? Hearse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> what is it? It actually kind of fits. Okay. <laughs>